This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's all eyes today on Toronto. Uh, Doug Ford has been chosen as the new leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. The other front runner for the race, uh, Christine Elliott, finally uh, conceded uh, yesterday after a very tumultuous campaign and leadership uh, uh, event that went on on Saturday. Alan Carter was there. Alan, of course, is the anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. How are you doing this morning, Alan? I'm great. You know, um, no sleep, uh, barely any food. It's it's perfect. It's exactly <laughs> what you want. Uh, I hope you didn't have dinner reservations for Saturday evening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've covered political conventions enough that you, you block book everything around a convention because you just never know what's going to happen. And given what's happened over the, the, the period of this, this leadership campaign, I, I, you know, I guess we had to expect some kind of glitch. But this this was a little abnormal, really, wasn't it? It was. I mean, you know, it wasn't a technical glitch. It was this weird thing about uh, a bunch of votes that did not have assigned ridings. And, of course, when you have a weighted system like the conservatives do, where you have a 100 points available per riding, where a vote goes in what particular riding can have a big impact. Because, to make it simple, if 100 people, if only 100 people vote in a riding, then each vote is worth one point but if a million people vote in that riding well you do the math that that you suddenly you're you know a percentage of that point so it, it has a big ramification and that's what took so long on saturday night and why miss elliott continued to contest well into sunday but here we go with another situation uh you know not unlike what happened in the u.s last year where the person with the most votes is not the winner that that's got to be frustrating for the elliott campaign Absolutely, but I mean, those are the rules. Yeah, you know, you can't really say at the other end of it that, well, you know, I didn't know the rules. She knew the rules, and really, the conventional wisdom was that the weighted system was going to work against Mister Ford, who's was seen to have a lot of strength in suburban Toronto, but not necessarily in the regions or in other parts of the province. And you know, if he had signed up a million members in Etobicoke he still only gets, you know, possibly 100 points out of one riding. It doesn't matter how many votes he has. But it's clear that Mr. Ford had good support right across the province. And here was the key, Bill, is there's two big things that happen. One, Tanya Granick-Allen pulled more support than many people were expecting, and almost exclusively all of her support went to Doug Ford. And then what everyone thought would happen on the third ballot, which is Carolyn Mulroney, of course, forced to drop off, but not enough of Mulroney's supporters chose Elliott as their second choice. A portion, a smaller portion, but a, por- a significant portion of them went to Ford, and that's what put him over the top. Yeah, the numbers I saw, and again, these were speculation, but I guess maybe they've been confirmed by now, is about 89% of uh, Granick Allen's support went to Doug Ford, and only about 73% of uh, Mulroney's support went over to Christine Elliott, which is kind of surprising. It is, and, you know, the conventional wisdom going in was that if Ford couldn't win on the second ballot, he couldn't win because the expectation was somewhere in the 90 percentile of Mulrooney voters would definitely go to Elliott, that they would not go to Ford. But clearly there was a portion of Mulrooney's support that did not like what they saw in Miss Elliott and opted instead for someone that you would think is, you know, diametrically opposed to if you're going to choose Mulrooney, but obviously that was their choice. 
What was it like in that hall, waiting and waiting and waiting? I mean, did they, obviously, as you say, Alan, you're, you've been there, done that. I mean, you've got the battle scars and got the T-shirt for doing this sort of thing. But the, the delegates, the ones who were there voting, the ones who were there expecting to have somebody crowned by 3.30 or 4 o'clock, uh, and from what you were saying on, on your report uh, when you were on with Angie on Saturday evening, people were coming up to you and say, what's going on? I mean, nobody seemed to have any idea what was happening. No, it was it was really chaos. There was no official word about anything. And, of course, all of the reporters are busily working their sources. And there were leaks. There were leaks from inside the room. Um, and, you know, I, I had some of it, and some other reporters had some other parts of it. So you had this weird situation where hundreds and hundreds of people of party members are all sort of gathered around whoever's got the smartphone with the Twitter with the most recent Twitter feed, watching Twitter and consuming news that way and finding out what's going on. And then every time I sort of moved from one area, there was this odd thing where there was the big convention hall where all the people were and the chairs were and all the TV were set up. And then there was this hallway off to the side where the individual campaigns and LEOC, which is in charge of the counting and all that, and where they were. So the reporters were sort of staked out in this hallway and every time you'd move from the hallway back into the main room to get something, I'd be, be grabbed by members who'd say, <laughs> what is going on? Uh, I can't remember which because I was following so many different folks on Twitter, but one of the, the, the media folks have tweeted something on Saturday that says, you know, God help them if they run out of booze at the uh, the pay bar right now because that's the only thing holding this thing together right now. It, it had to be a very frustrating afternoon. It was a frustrating afternoon, but at eight bucks a drink, uh, I think the party <laughs> probably did pretty well. Uh, <laughs> the, the hotel certainly did, yeah. Somebody was making off like a bandit. <laughs> uh, did they lose a grand moment? You know how these things always turn out, whether it's a ranked balloting system like this or, or the old-fashioned way, whichever. There's always that crowning moment, and, and I know that... Oftentimes, uh, political parties are being accused of, well, holding things off because they want to be that first story on the 6 o'clock news, or maybe even preempt the first story in the 6 o'clock news, to make that announcement. And the balloons drop, and everybody cheers, and there's this moment of unity. Uh, instead, they got, go home, people. We're not ready for this yet. That, that's, that's not how they wanted this to go. But is it really going to have an impact on, on the party and on, on the people that are watching this? Well, I would, you know, I'd point out that Dalton McGinty, uh, won the leadership at what was it four o'clock in the morning? Yeah, it was you know there and, and uh, so did Lynn McLeod way back campaign. when. Yeah, you know, um, I, yeah, it, I mean, obviously it's a disappointment for them in terms of being able to build some momentum, but really, I don't think it's gonna, it's not gonna factor in people's choices come June seventh. It's uh, it's it's one of those things that I guess it's like an inside baseball thing. Like those of us that are are watching this stuff and covering this stuff and and writing about this stuff. Uh, we noticed that, but, uh, you know, as, as I was saying to some friends yesterday, I said, let's face it, you know, by that time of the evening, an awful lot of people uh, in that province were watching the hockey game. They weren't paying much attention to what was going on there. I said, we'll pick it up when the, when the announcement's made. Well, yeah, and, and that's true. And, you know, there is a sort of narrative that says, well, I mean, these, these guys can't even run a leadership. How, how can we give them the keys to the province? But, I, again, I think that's going to be pretty much in the rearview mirror uh, once we get into the slugfest that I'm expecting between Wynn and Ford. It is, it's going to be knock them down, I think. Well, according to the numbers, and I don't put a whole lot of faith in polling, but, I mean, it's, it's a rather interesting narrative that's developing here. Uh, the majority of Ontarians don't like Doug Ford as the leader, but they certainly don't like Kathleen Wynn. So uh, somebody on June 7th is going to have to hold their nose and vote for one of them. Well, if you're Andrea Horvath, you're jumping up and down. Oh, no kidding. I'm still here. I'm still here. 
Yeah, and and they're going to say, well, okay, what do you stand for? And she says, well, I'll get back to you on that. I mean, uh, there's there's a. <laughs> There's a lot of warts on all three parties right now, and, and nobody's a real front runner. I know the polling indicates that, that the, the Tories look like they're in pretty good shape right now, but that's the overriding question at this stage, isn't it? Is, is Ford going to be a liability or an asset? Well, remember that you know what's going to happen is that the, the conservatives now are, I'm sorry, the liberals really are going to go after Ford, and they're going to try and paint him as a Trump-like character, somebody who is not in, you know, interested in truth, somebody who is not interested in climate change, who is... Uh, you know, obviously gone down a social conservative road to be able to win this leadership by talking about things like abortion. I mean, the liberals are going to be saying those sort of things and trying to shore up what would be a centrist voter, centrist urban voters, remember, are the key to power for the liberals. And, you know, can Ford ride a wave of discontent uh, in urban centers uh, against the liberals where people are going to say, well, I'm going to overlook these things that you know, traditionally, I would not vote for someone that was social conservative or, or this sort of ilk. But, you know, when you're a populist and when people are angry at the current government, man, anything can happen. Clearly, Doug Ford courted the social conservative element to this. And, and obviously, uh, he was best friends with Tanya Granick-Allen during the last debate and certainly uh, on Saturday at, at the, uh, the convention hall as well. But is is he going to embrace that ideology? I mean, Stephen Harper did the same thing back in 2005 and got elected, but did not actually do that uh, and governed more towards, well, I don't want to necessarily say the center, but I mean the center right anyway. Um, and he, he resisted the temptation to, to move that way. Uh, that's always the question when that element's involved in, in, in electing a leader on the conservative side anyway. Yeah, but the traditional way you do it, and you know, Patrick Brown did it, and you, you mentioned Stephen Harper. I mean, there there's a long history of what you do is you court the social conservatives. They put you in power, and then you know once you're in power, you slowly inch yourself away and push them to the side and move your party back into a, a more of an electability stance. I mean, Brown did that, but he did it with you know he, he was so ham-fisted about it that he just absolutely alienated and infuriated the right of the party. The problem is now is that, you know, we have 100 days to go. So Mr. Ford really can't, it's going to be difficult for him to pivot too much away from that social conservative stand. Well, especially because uh, during the the leadership campaign, I mean, all the major candidates really tore apart Patrick Brown's agenda, uh, the people's guarantee, and I got to wonder which part of it they're going to try to embrace, and which part of it they're going to try to incorporate into what's almost, in some people's minds, going to be a, a campaign agenda on the run here, being made up in the back of an envelope. Yeah, and I think if, if there's anybody that could have come out of the conservative contenders to take the leadership, that that not having a platform is a bonus. It's Doug Ford. I mean, if Christine Elliott had won, you would have been looking to Elliott to, okay, where's your costed platform? Where's your detailed costed platform? And explain it to me. But Mr. Ford, you know, some of the same rules don't apply to him. And again, we go back to this Trump comparison. I don't want to belabor it because, you know, I, I think there are some similarities with, Mr. with President Trump, but obviously some key differences as well. But I think one of the similarities is that Doug Ford doesn't play quite by the same rules. The same sort of parameters don't apply to him as a politician. So he looks at, you know, not having a firm, detailed grasp on policy as a bonus. You know, and if you start, you know, badgering him about finer details of finance or policy, he'll just say, this is the sort of elite talk that we need to get rid of. And he'll go back to platitudes. 
It's uh, going to be interesting, to say the least, and it's been a long weekend already. Alan, I know uh, you're a busy guy today. Thanks so much for this. We'll be watching for more coverage, of course, Global News at 530 and 6 tonight. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Always uh, great talking to you. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, is a co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6 and Queens Park Bureau Chief. It's it's a fascinating dynamic that's at play here. And I mean, Alan mentioned just a couple of minutes ago about how the other two major parties, the NDP and the Liberals, are going to try to to define uh, Doug Ford. And uh, it's well, it's not going to be too difficult for them because there's a lot of ammunition, as there is with the other two, uh, which is why this is going to be such an interesting race. Uh, after Saturday, I get the feeling that all three parties now really and truly think they got a shot at that. I know they all say that, of course, heading into an election. But the numbers obviously usually show that it's a two-person or two-party race. But I'm not so sure now. Uh, I know that uh, there's been a couple of polling uh, numbers come out over the last uh, 24 hours or so that indicates that uh, the Tories would still win a majority government. Uh, And that's interesting. Uh, Mind you, invariably when a new leader is selected to a party, there's usually a bump in the popularity numbers. Uh, when Doug Ford was uh, selected on Saturday, the, the numbers by that same polling organization actually fell five points. Still have a lead over the Liberals, but uh, that gives the Liberals hope. And uh, I know that uh, there were a number of Liberals, some of them came on this program over the last couple of weeks, and were hoping that Doug Ford was going to be the nominee because he would be so easy to run against. And, and I would caution them. I, I understand that the comparisons to, to Ford and to Trump are very real and, and very easy to make. And it's this populist, populist ways, and, and as Alan Carter just talked about, yeah, oftentimes in, in, there's, there's no policy there. There's no substance to it. There's a lot of platitudes and cliches. You know, we're going to cut off, the, you know, what was it, stop the gravy train, trim the fat, all that sort of stuff. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, we're just going to cut. We're going to cut millions and billions of dollars, and we're going to save taxpayers money. But, I mean, when you look at that realistically— what politician seeking public office has not made that promise? I mean, that's one of the basics. And, and, and of course, I understand that's going to that's gonna resonate with a certain percentage of the population. But there are going to be others that are going to say, well, how are you going to do this? Because we've heard that song before from a lot of politicians. You know, the Mike Harris Common Sense Revolution, same way. You know, we're going to get rid of all this excess spending and we're going to cut money. We're going to save people taxes and you're going to love it. Oh, and they, we voted them in was a substantial majority. But then, then when you started to realize how they were doing it, how there was a lot of, a lot of those costs downloaded onto municipalities, which meant it went onto your property taxes, when we saw some of the cuts to some of the government departments, and then we saw Walkerton happen, and we saw the subsequent inquiry point the finger at the Harris government and say, you, you guys didn't cause this, but you were certainly a contributing factor. And we saw other cutbacks, and we saw hospitals with no funding shutting their doors, and on and on it went. And we got tired of that and said, well, wait a second. Wait a second. Before you promise you're going to cut spending, before you promise you're going to make things better for us economically, tell us how you're going to do it. Because there's a little part in each and every one of us, in you and me and everybody else, that says, yeah, we want more efficient government. Yeah, we want our taxes to, if not go down, at least stabilize. But don't touch any of the programs that I like. Don't touch any of the programs that benefit my family. Well, you can't have it that way. You can't have it both ways, really. But it's going to be interesting to see just how quickly we get into substance in this. But it's going to be a very interesting provincial election campaign. I mean, the rate's not even dropped yet. That doesn't actually officially happen for another few weeks. But as Alan said, it's about 100 days now until we actually go to vote on June the 7th. 
And uh, this one's right up in the air right now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There is a fascinating piece in uh, the latest edition of the Bay Observer. Uh, labor turmoil in local NDP constituency offices. Now, i got to tell you, a, a few folks in the media I've talked to have heard rumblings about this over the last number of months, but uh, it took the Bay Observer's investigative reporter to actually dig into this and get some rather startling numbers, really. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. John, how are you doing this morning? Doing well, Bill. Uh, you must be getting an awful lot of feedback on this. This is a, a rather troubling story when you talk about as you mentioned in the first part of the uh, the article in the uh, the Bay Observer, uh, if you were to play word association and ask anybody, uh, okay, which political party stands up for workers' rights and to make sure that the environment is great, you'd, uh, probably a lot of people would say, well, the NDP is the party of the working person. Uh, well, that, that may be their idea, but uh, the stuff that you put in this piece today and the stuff that you've discovered as you were looking into this paint a much different picture. Yeah, it, it, uh, to be honest, I was I was surprised. Um, I, I got a, a a tip that there was something going on, and initially, uh, when I was looking into this matter, I, I thought it was one office. Uh, but very quickly, I found out that there were elements of this problem in all three of the local NDP offices. And uh, you know, and and I want to say that I. Having gone there, I, I suspect that if one had the time and the, the resources to, to make a more thorough examination, I, I suspect this problem is not an NDP problem at the end of the day, but it certainly is here in Hamilton. Well, they're the ones that are talking, I'm, you know, not the, the MPPs themselves, but certainly the people that worked in those offices. What did you find out, John? Well, it was just a, an overriding, uh, I, I guess the, the most surprising thing was just the sheer turnover so we're talking three offices uh, who typically have two full-time people. So they're three two-person offices, if you will. Uh, and between them, somewhere in the area of 11 or 12 terminations, either quit, uh, fired, uh, gone on stress leave, uh, uh, just a unbelievable turnover uh, for... Um, you know, for three small offices, and I, I just couldn't believe it. And the problem, uh, one of the problems, there's all kinds of problems, but uh, one of the problems is that uh, under their union agreement, uh, if they are fired, uh, the, the union agreement says they stay on the payroll uh, until the matter is arbitrated. So we, we had at least two instances of people uh, being paid to stay home for incredible lengths of time, uh, the one person that would go on the record about it was Todd White, who happens to be the chair of our Board of yeah, Education. Yeah, Todd's on the show a lot, as, of course, with his other hat as, as chairman of the, the Hamilton Board of Education. But I don't know if too many people knew that he actually worked as a, with Paul Miller's constituency office, wasn't it? No, uh, I certainly didn't know. But, you know, his story is that last June uh, there were three departures from that office. Uh, I think one was the Toronto... The, the, the MPPs are allowed three staff or allowed enough money to hire three staff. Uh, one typically works at Queen's Park uh, in, the, in the member's office there, and the other two handle the constituency office. Three departures in June of last year, including White. Uh, and uh, he said, here's what I can tell you. I am still on the payroll. I have not been in the office since last June. And if you want any more information, you'll have to ask the member. So there's one, and I think at Andrea Horvath's office, uh, 
there's a, there was an actual uh, labor arbitration document that was filed that seemed to indicate that in her case, uh, a former staffer, Geraldine McMullen, uh, had been terminated in 2012 and as of 2014 was still on the payroll uh, as the matter was being, uh, I guess, dragging on. And, and in that instance, Horvath's office actually grieved the union uh, to stop the payments because it was alleged that the the uh, person in question had now taken another full-time job. So just by that description, John, it sounds as if there's a glitch in, in, in maybe in the legislation, I guess. And, and I understand how union contracts can be, and, and it's, it's not unique to, to this particular situation. But it sounds as if uh, there's a problem. Maybe these things are taking too long. Maybe this idea that they stay on the payroll no matter what. Uh, but uh, as you pointed out in the piece, even if that is the case, and you mentioned about the uh, the former employee in, in uh, Andrea Horvath's office that's still being well, was being paid after 17 months, and uh, and Todd White's circumstance in Miller's office still being paid, uh, it doesn't come out of their budget. Once they're let go, it, there's there's another bo- bo- pool of money that they dip into. Well. The people that are paid to stay home, apparently that does come out of the budget okay. of, of the member. Uh, but if they go on stress leave, as five of them have done, five people on stress leave um, out of the three offices, uh, that is uh, paid out of a, uh, a Queen's Park pool. And uh, similarly, if they're terminated and they get a severance, that's also paid out of a Queen's Park pool. But the uh, paid to stay home while there's arbitration going on, that comes out of the budget of the member, which means, obviously, that if you're paying somebody to stay home, it's obviously affecting your staffing in the office, and it means that the public is not getting the service they're entitled to. Well, and let's let's talk about that. So, I mean, people would say, well, why does this matter to us? Well, it's your tax dollars that, that are, are paying for this stuff. And, they, you know, even if it is coming out of a, an MPP's budget, I mean, that's where the money comes from. You and I are eventually, we're, we're the ones that are doling the money out for this. Now, I, I can tell you, I, I, I've never worked as an MP or an MPP, of course, but I was on city council for nine years, and we had somewhat of a similar structure, although there were no satellite offices. I worked in the city. I had one administrative assistant, not three. It is a very stressful job, just by definition. There's a lot of work, because basically you're the first line uh, when people call into the constituency office. And, and let's face it, you rarely get calls, John, any elected official rarely gets calls saying, hey, I just want to let you know you're doing a great job. Well, usually when they call, they're angry about something, and, and that staffer is the one that has to take the, the heat for whatever is going on, uh, try to understand it, and try to see what they can do about it, what department to go to, or who else to call. So there's, there's a high level of stress just by definition here. No question, and I, I know constituency workers in other situations, and I know the, the workload can be crushing, but if you, if you add to the, you know, the, what is already a, a high-stress job by nature of the workload and the attitude of the people that are calling you, add to that uh, a, a temperamental uh, boss who apparently doesn't know how to handle personnel issues, uh, you know, a narcissistic kind of approach, uh, now you've really got a problem because not only are you dealing with a stressful public situation, but you're not being supported or you're, you're actually being harassed or bullied. Well, that's, so, that's the other side of this coin. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, this is a stressful job, so it takes a special kind of individual to be able to do that. But if at the other side of this, if they're being bullied or, 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 or feel as if they're in an unsafe working environment because of some of the things that are said and some of the things that are, they're being asked to do, that only exacerbates that pressure. 
It sure does. And, and again, you know, if, uh, if you go back and, and just look at the sheer cost here, we've got an opportunity cost in the sense that those offices can't be functioning at full uh, capability when you've got that kind of churn going on, people leaving, people on stress leave. Uh, so the public's not being well served. And meanwhile, there's God knows how much uh, money is being racked up in paying people to be unproductive. And I tried to get uh, the information. Now, I knew, you know, I, so I approached the uh, the NDP office, and they they just absolutely wouldn't deal with me at all. So I tried dealing with uh, the legislative office that, that basically handles funding for all the constituency offices of uh, all three parties or all four parties. And he said he's actually got legislation that prevents him from giving out the information and what I was asking for, I knew that, you know, obviously they're not going to tell you what they paid out on employee A or employee B, but I just wanted a global number. I just want to say, how much are you paying out in severances, period? How much have you paid out in the Hamilton ridings? And how much are you paying out across the uh, across the province? And uh, they wouldn't give me the information. And yeah, so but John, I, that's, I got a problem with that right off the bat. That's not money that falls from heaven. That comes from us. Absolutely. So I, I filed an appeal to the Information and Privacy Commissioner. That'll take some time. Uh, I won't have, you know, a response either way probably for months. But whenever it comes out, I'm, I'm back in business with another story. I just think there's a lot more here, Bill. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that uh, anyone else that's had a similar experience might think about um, giving us a call here at the Bay Observer because, I think we've tripped on to something that, that may, at the end of the day, involve a lot more than, than three writings in, uh, in Hamilton, Ontario. This is one of the most disturbing sections of, of the piece that's uh, in the current issue of the Bay Observer. I'll just paraphrase. John, you know this piece, but it's only a couple of lines long here. Yep. It says, according to one former staffer, a Hamilton MPP asked an employee to do an online search on the status of a private members bill the MPP had sponsored. When the worker, who was relatively new to the job, asked for instructions on how to execute the search, a co-worker recalls the MPP yelling, Are you, ep well, expletive, kidding? Are you, expletive, stupid? The worker went home in tears and said one former worker, When I left this person's employee, this MPP, I was physically and mentally broken. They wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I told them to go to hell. And it goes on from there. Uh, this goes to work environment, and you also outline here some of the other stories from other employees, from some of the ex-employees, I guess, in some cases of these MPPs, that they're asked to work long hours for no extra pay, that they're expected to involve themselves in political events and political campaigns, even though that's not part of the job description. And, and if they say they refuse to do so, they are basically are told to go find employment someplace else. Yeah, and it's not, uh, it's not simply being asked to work on the members' campaign. But it's being asked to work on campaigns uh, for people that are favored by the member. So uh, there were people that were asked to get involved in the Ward 7 by-election uh, uh, two years ago uh, that uh, didn't necessarily want to do that. So it's, uh, you know, uh, as one person told me, uh, these people are delusional in some ways. And if you do refuse to get involved in political activity, they just find another excuse to get you out. So that that wasn't very, uh, you know, there. I mean, some people are very good at doing constituency work, but it doesn't automatically make them uh, campaigners. And and the idea, I think, we're none of us are naive enough to think that the political staff don't very often, in fact, in the majority of cases, work on 
the campaigns for their bosses, whether it's at City Hall or federally or provincially. But the idea that you could be terminated for not doing it is, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty bad. But here's uh, the reality. And, and again, for those that, that only have a cursory knowledge of, of how politics works, I get that, okay? And you may have somebody who's an MPP, in other words, a provincial politician, uh, who wants to support somebody who's running, say, in a federal election of the same political party. I get that, certainly, and we certainly see that sort of endorsement. But what you're writing about and what these people told you is that the expectation was that all of their employees also sign on to do that. It's supposed to be volunteer, which means you can do it if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't hold it against you. But apparently that's not the, the standard that was set in some of these offices. No, and, and I mean, the other thing is, uh, is it all happening after work? I don't think so. So what, what you're really getting are, are paid, uh, you and I paying uh, campaign workers, uh, because I'm sure that when the writ is dropped and, and they're in full-blown campaign mode, that this is a, not simply an after-hours deal. It's going to be all day. So essentially, again, taxpayers are funding this stuff. Well, and, and it begs a few questions about, uh, let's, let's talk about the finances. We've done that. We've talked about the fact that this is taxpayer money. We talk about bullying in the workplace, and, and it's interesting that some of these other folks that, uh, that are, are being accused of this by some of these ex-employees are the very ones that are standing in front of the TV cameras and in front of our microphones and saying just the opposite. I know that, uh, that uh, Money Taylor is being accused here by a former employee of uh, participating in the demonstration outside the Tim Hortons coffee shops a couple of months ago. Uh, confronting corporate bully bosses at Tim Hortons. And one of the employees said, well, that's call it the kettle calling the pot black. Uh, can you say hypocrisy at its best? Uh, there's a, an undercurrent of dissatisfaction, I guess. We could maybe just temper it and use that word. But it's, it's a rather troubling picture that they're painting. Yeah, you, you kind of feel like Captain Obvious to be pointing all this stuff out. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know we, I guess we've become so inured to uh, hypocrisy uh, that that when you come across a, uh, something as blatant as this, it you know it, it it probably doesn't have the impact that it really should have because we're just you know we're we're totally calloused over on on the the insincerity of it and I I don't know what it is I, I you know uh, I'm a, of an age where I can remember people really used to look up to their elected members. Uh, you know, if you go back to, you know, people like to talk about the Bill Davis era and some of the ministers he had, but even, you know, Peterson, uh, I mean, even, you know, if you go to the, the, the NDP provincial government, you had Bob Ray leading it. Uh, you, you know, it just seems to me that maybe it's uh, so many things have changed in terms of pensions and so on, but you just don't feel like we're, and I'm talking about all three parties now, you just don't feel like you're getting the same caliber of people that we that we used to get running. And then when when you have people that don't have background and, and, and don't know anything about managing anything, uh, I think that's when you get these kind of problems. There is one of the glaring weaknesses, and I'm, I'm sure, and you point out in the piece, John, that this is, this is true of all the political parties. Anybody that gets elected to public office, we can talk about the quality of the candidates, and I think that's a, a discussion that needs to happen, absolutely. But once they get elected, whichever party they are and whomever they are, how many of them actually have any skill at all in managing an office? Because essentially that's what they're told to do here. 
Yeah, they, they've got a Queens Park office, and they're supposed to have support staff there. They have to open a constituency office, and some of these people are people that have never done this before. They have no training at all in in in, in HR. Uh, they don't know anything about people skills. They don't know about training their staff. You're just expected to know what to do. And, and, you know, when the you-know-what hits the fan, well, too bad, so sad, you better learn to deal with it. That's not how you're supposed to run any kind of an office. So it's with that lack of training by the MPPs themselves, who probably know little to nothing about managing an office, it's no wonder that this is the environment in which this, the staff are working. Well, exactly. And uh, in, in an editorial, a companion piece that I wrote, I, I did suggest that, that maybe what's needed here, uh, number one, I don't think you can trust these constituency offices entirely to the member. I think there have to be some centralized standards for any constituency office, so there probably needs to be a little bit of a school uh, for these members. And I, I also think that, uh, you know, there, there needs to be training. Uh, uh, you know, how long, even if it's just, a, you know, maybe a two-day tutorial, but there has to be some training so that people understand that there is an expectation, there's minimum standards, there, there, there's thresholds of uh, behavior that, uh, that can't be crossed, and uh, maybe that would help a little bit. I mean, you know, how much training should you need to run a two-person office? It's like a one-car funeral, you know. I mean, come on. But if it's needed, then so be it. Let's let's provide that training. And I suspect I, there, there was a fair amount of um, social media traffic on this matter, and I did see uh, someone posting um, a, a post that, that said there, there may be a problem in a federal liberal uh, writing, uh, not in Hamilton, but in, the, in southern Ontario. Somebody posted that. So I, I think I'd like to pursue this a little further and just see how widespread this uh, constituency office problem is. Yeah, this may well be a Pandora's box. It's, uh, it's an interesting read and, uh, and a must-read for you. Labor turmoil in local NDP constituency offices. It's the latest edition online of the Bay Observer. John, thanks as always for the great work and thanks for the time today. Yeah, bayobserver.com for those who don't get the paper delivered to their home. Excellent. And uh, check it out today online. Okay, thanks, Bill. Take take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, try to analyze what happened, uh, not just on Saturday with uh, the Ontario Progressive Conservative leadership uh, selection process, but uh, the I guess the debates themselves and the whole campaign and what's going to happen going forward? There was a lot of concern, as we talked about with Alan Carter from Global News in the last hour, about how long it took about the balloting system, because it was not the first past the post that you and I use to elect governments. Uh, it was a different system. And uh, not everybody in that hall, I'm sure, not everybody who was watching with great interest about who that next leader was going to be was really happy with the process. Let's bring Christo Avalos into the pro- into the uh, conversation here, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council uh, postdoctoral fellow at History at University of Toronto. Uh, Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I right, was talking with a couple of my uh, politicos uh, on the weekend here. We were just kind of re- rehashing what was going on on Saturday, and as one of them suggested, uh, if this was supposed to be a, an opportunity to showcase what a ranked balloting system uh, was supposed to work and how efficient it can be, uh, it was not a very good opportunity for them to do so. There were a lot of faults in this. What, what was your assessment on what you saw happening? Well, you know, a couple things. You know, I think, you know, I, I'm personally, you know, a proponent of electoral reform, but I support a proportional system, uh, mixed member proportional. So I'm not actually a fan of ranked ballot either. But, you know, what we saw was a really interesting mishmash. 
they didn't have a pure ranked ballot. The NDP federally had a ranked ballot with a kind of one member, one vote. This, they, they do two hybrids. They have a ranked ballot, but they don't just count the amount of votes you get. It also matter where those votes come from. So when you heard the announcement, you know, late Saturday night, you actually heard them not give out votes, but give out points. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the way that you get a certain amount of votes, but it also matters that those votes are in the right ridings at the right proportions, which is why you had this very weird phenomenon that not only did Christine Elliott get the most votes, but win the most ridings, but she didn't win the right ridings in the right way. And that's why she's not leader right now. And frankly, I think that's why, you know, it took her a while to concede because her team probably looked at this as like, how did we lose? Like, uh, and I think in terms of the specific conservative party system, I certainly don't think it was vindicated. But again, an actual ranked ballot where you just say have say you had sixty thousand people voting, the person who gets the most votes out of those sixty thousand on the final ballot, you know, wins the race. You know, I think that that that's not what we saw here. Yeah, and and of course the inevitable comparisons with the Hillary Clinton Donald Trump election uh, from last year, that uh, you know Clinton of course won the popular vote, but uh, you know Trump won the electoral college, uh, and as a result, of course, he's the one in the White House and not Hillary Clinton, notwithstanding the fact that she had substantially more votes uh, in in that election. Does the system that the Tories use then, Christo, essentially set up a, a, an electoral college like the United States has? I mean. It- not necessarily. There are a couple differences. One of the differences is that it's not winner-take-all. So, for instance, if you win Florida by one vote in the United States, you get all of the electoral college votes from Florida. You don't get 51%. Mm-hmm. But with this, you know, it wasn't the case that if you won, you know, uh, Brampton East, then you won all the votes from Brampton East. It wasn't in, the, in that sense. But it does set up a kind of system, and this is the PC's intent, um, that tries to balance out um, geographic uh, representation in the party so that not one or two or three big ridings where there are, say, a few thousand conservative activists can, can kind of dictate the result. And the point of that is to try to get somebody, at least hypothetically, that represents all sorts of ridings. But it could end up in a scenario like this where somebody wins, but they may be, according to a lot of you know, regular conservatives or a lot of regular Ontarians, doesn't look like they won because of what the results look like in their kind of political instinct. And that's the challenge. The conservatives federally used a similar system, uh, and it was very close between Scheer and Bernier. But, you know, I don't think the results were in doubt there to the same extent, but they had a similar system. It's interesting you use that as, as a comparator, and I wanted to bring that up. I'm glad you did. Because when I watched that last summer, uh, it, it was, uh, as you say, a very similar system. But they, they, they re- announced the results differently, Christoph, if you recall. They did announce the first ballot win, or, or you know, the results, and then the yeah. second ballot. In other words, but it, it, on Saturday, they just went behind closed doors and just said, we're going to do all the calculations now and just tell you who the winner is. And, and yeah. I don't, I, I'm, I, there was a certain lack of transparency. I'm not suggesting there was anything untoward. But but for those that were kind of waiting for that first, second, third ballot announcement, that never happened. We just got the end result. It's it's like, you know, doing a math exam and just writing the answer down and not showing your work. Yeah, no, certainly. I think it was more important they did it uh, for the federal, because they had like 13 people running. Yeah, yeah. And I think in that particular case, you needed to kind of see, okay, who was at like 21%, but therefore is winning after ballot one, 
and then you know all of all of that kind of calculation and it gives a good sense of where people were and and how the vote broke down i think with this one of the problems is that i think from the beginning the dispute between kind of the elliot and ford camps about would votes count and uh, do those votes count i i don't think there was as much a dispute about the votes validity but but again because of this system and the peculiarities if the vote is, if you're unsure about where that vote comes from, that's a big deal because where it comes from can be just as important as who it was for. Um, so in that case, I think they realized from the beginning here that this is going to be very close, and there was a, basically a dispute. And you know, maybe the party didn't want to start reading out first ballot results um, that would have to be kind of changed, and they didn't want to cascade. So I think that it certainly didn't feel like a normal kind of convention in that sense, but. You know, maybe they did the right thing where, you know, if there are disputes, it's best to not say anything until you figured it out. Uh, you know, yeah. You know. <laughs> or, or after the fact, obviously. Yeah, yeah, Be- certainly, yeah. Because in a, in a traditional situation, uh, you know, we'd be watching, those that are watching or covering the, the convention or the leadership itself, are, are suggesting, okay, you know, uh, let's, uh, Granik Allen finished last, so she falls off the ballot. Where does her support go? There's there's a sense of drama there that kind of builds up. And we saw that with the federal race and even with the NDP race to a certain extent, uh, to say where do those supporters go. Uh, it was all done by computer, really. So that element was taken out of that. And I'm not suggesting it's, it's better or worse. But it's less transparent, I think, and I think that caused some frustration, especially for the people in the hall waiting for the results. No, certainly. I think, you know, you figure that if it's really close, maybe you get that first ballot, you see it's very close between Elliott and Ford and, you know, all of that. But again, I think here, like, like you noted, with the federal conservatives, the race was done when they started announcing the results, but they, you know, I think they were smart in trying to build up interest and you know, read the numbers and almost like you're trying to do it almost like a like for TV for an audience, build up the suspense and say, OK, we're getting down to this. And people start tuning in and Twitter's on your convention longer. Uh, you know, the federal NDP tried to do this where they were going to do a system where if you voted online, you could actually change your vote in between ballots. But they didn't need a second ballot because you had to sing one on the first. But you're right here. It just it kind of happened. And then at 11.30 at night or so, we got the announcements from, you know, in, in a, a one of the, the side rooms of the convention hall because they weren't allowed to be in the main hall anymore. Um, and the reality is that I think the only reason they did it that way is because, again, from the beginning, it seems like Elliot was challenging the results. And they felt that if they started reading things out, then they couldn't go back on them. And I think that was their fear. Well, when you look at what happened, for instance, with the federal party last year, I mean, let's face it, as as they all assembled for that final day and, and that vote tally, a lot of folks were thinking this was going to be Kevin O'Leary and Maxime Bernier. That was the race. And and where was Kelly Leach going to be? And, oh, yeah, Shear's the House Speaker, but he's, he's probably middle of the pack. Well, of course, the further they went down the road there, uh, the material that second and third valley support for Bernier never materialized, and we saw Shear come back up the middle and and actually win the thing. I, I guess that scenario probably not might not have happened, but I mean, you know, with only four candidates in the running, but just the same, you got to wonder where where was that first ballot support? I mean, were Ford and Elliott close right from the beginning, or did that happen after the the second place votes and the second tally went on? Uh, a lot of questions still to be answered, I think. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they read some of those things out uh, at the beginning, and it was very close throughout all three ballots. I think one of the key factors was that uh, Tanya Greenwich, a lot of her support, a large majority of it, went to Doug Ford. And while, you know, she was expected to kind of be a bit player in this, and, you know, she didn't win. She 
Um, she got 15% of the vote um, and drove the conversation and I think helped give legitimacy to Doug Ford's campaign by being the kind of most outrageous person on stage. Doug Ford seemed a little bit more uh, mainstream. And Granich actually was able to quite, quite effectively, um, whether she planned to or not, her support uh, effectively galvanized behind Ford and was a big factor in him winning. So you could kind of see that when they read it all at the end. They read first ballot, Granich is off. And then they recalculated the totals and said, and then said Mulroney is off. And then they said the final vote and Doug Ford narrowly won. So we got that eventually. But you're right. In a 13-person in a race or even going back to the Stéphane Dion kind of picket, uh, the federal one in the mid-2000s, that was like a seven- or eight-person race, there is that opportunity for someone who is hated by no one uh, to kind of eventually win as a consensus pick. And that's what Andrew Scheer was. No conservative hated him. That's why he's the leader. Well, that's one of the big questions as a result of this. Uh, you know, when, when Scheer won the federal race, uh, that very thing that you just described did occur. Brad Trost, who is considered to be a, a, a social conservative, uh, threw that support behind Scheer as opposed to Bernier, and that was one of the contributing factors in Scheer's victory. And then, of course, the question was, well, is Scheer going to embrace that that SoCon, uh, it, that uh, that ideology? And we're asking the same thing about Doug Ford right now. Just how far down the road is he going to go to embrace that ideology and that platform of, uh, of Granik Allen? And is that going to form the foundation for the Conservatives heading into the election? You know, that's a great question. Uh, my inkling is that he's in a bit of a tough position for a couple reasons. Again, as you said, it's kind of clear the Granik wing, which is not, not massive, but it's not negligible um, either, um, helped get him his, 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 his leadership. And I think he's going to have to reach out to those people somehow. The challenge is, is that you know, when you run for a leadership of a party, you run on different platforms and different ideas and different, you know, messaging than you do when you run for actual premier. Um, and so often you'll see leaders pivot. But whereas Andrea Horwath has been leader for a long time and Kathleen Wynne have been leader for a long time, and even Patrick Brown, you know, became leader a couple of years ago and had lots of time before the election, Doug Ford has literally less than 100 days. And the reality is, is that if he says something like he wants to take away abortion rights or restrict abortion rights for, for teenage girls, that's going to be troubling for him for a lot of moderates. That's not the kind of thing most Ontarian voters want. And I think while Patrick Brown could kind of downplay some of the social conservatism in his party, um, uh, you know, pivoting away from some of those things, Doug Ford used some of those things to win. And now all of a sudden, if he breaks away from that, it's going to have to be a very sharp break. And he might end up in the scenario where, one, people don't believe that he doesn't believe that, but the people who actually care about it feel like they've been sold out. So everyone's mad at him. And that's a kind of dangerous position to be in when you want to you know, play with the kind of social conservative wing to get the nomination, but worry about it risking your majority. And the new form pullout you know, does have the conservatives in first place, the one that just came out with the Toronto Star, but they're already down significantly where they were from Brown. Um, and there's a risk that, you know, Ford being unpopular, not as unpopular as Wynn, of course, but not nearly as popular as Andrea Horwath, uh, creates a situation where, um, you know, they could continue to slip. What about voting systems? I mean, they use this ranked balloting system, and, and as you mentioned, Crystal, the, the, the validation for this is they wanted to make sure that every ballot was weighted properly and effectively and, and fairly right across the province. But that's not how we're going to vote on September, on June the 7th. Uh, it's the first past the post, and, and we all know that the last number of elections— 
the municipalities, the cities, have carried the vote, uh, especially since the liberals came to power 15 years ago. Uh, their success in the GTHA, really, because we include Hamilton uh, and uh, and Kitchener-Waterloo in that area, and of course up the 401 corridor, that's where their success is. Uh, so they're not going to be weighted ballots right there. To, so is, is there a different scenario at play here? Because those municipalities are the ones that usually determine government when you have provincial elections. No, certainly. I think, you know, in our current system, we have, you really, you want to look at, I, I can't remember exactly how many seats there are in Ontario, but... You know, let's say there's 100 just for easy. There's really our election is 100 small elections, each of which are fully independent in one another. Uh, not not politically, of course, because the leader, you know, has a national or a provincial profile. But each individual election, all the ballots in Hamilton in the four different ridings, three different ridings in Hamilton are counted separately. Uh, right here in Kingston, uh, we have our own distinct election. And you can win each of those um, and, and form government and it's kind of independent of the results, whereas in a ranked ballot system like the Conservatives did, they weighed it. And even in a traditional ranked ballot system, you would still preserve the kind of distinct races. It would just be that you couldn't win a riding on the first ballot uh, unless you got 50% support. Um, so you're right. In our current system, you know, just the, 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 the conglomerates of the cities, Toronto especially, um, does kind of give a numerical advantage to parties that can tap into that. Um, there's a couple factors this time that could make it very interesting. Is Doug Ford is a Toronto guy in a sense? You know, he's kind of from the outskirts of the city, but he's a Toronto guy. And more than most conservatives, he might be able to kind of break through Toronto, which has always been a difficult spot for for that party in, in the last you know 20 years or so. Um, and another factor is the strategic vote mentality that a, that the Liberals generally benefit from. Well, recent polling has shown that. If an election was held today, the Conservatives would have a majority, but the NDP would have three times the seats the Liberals would. And so I think that if a strategic voting mentality goes to Andrea Horwath this time, how that breaks down, which kind of ridings become strategic voting ridings, might be very different than we saw in 2014. And that could shake things up in terms of which ridings, say in the GTA or in Hamilton or in Kitchener-Waterloo, suddenly become relevant from a political perspective. It's going to be a very crazy 100 days. Christo, thanks as always for your perspective on this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Talk again soon. Thanks again. Christo Avalos, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.